Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy and banter. Gabe Dowdick. Hello, Ben. Howdy, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we're reviewing two twin movies about a young boy who sees dead people and teams up with a father figure to solve a murder that will put their ghosts to rest. It's The Sixth Sense versus Stir of Echoes. Let the haunting begin, Gabe. Spooky. (laughs) Whoa. Spooky. (laughs) Thank you, Snithers. Okay, as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. So way back on the 6th of August, 1999, The Sixth Sense was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A boy who communicates with spirits seeks the help of a disheartened child psychologist. I see dead people. Gabe, did you originally catch The Sixth Sense at the movies? And how was that experience? Are we going to do this whole podcast? Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be great. Maybe uh, perhaps Hank put some of the uh, sort of Scooby-Doo haunted music <laughs> in the background. Get it out of your system now, Ben, because we're not doing that for this fucking podcast. Um, uh, uh, It's a haunted hand job in Stir of Echoes. Uh, um, Ectoplasm. I saw The Sixth Sense at the cinema. Everyone saw The Sixth Sense at the cinema. It was a cultural phenomenon. Phenomenon. Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, didn't you see it at the cinema? Surely you saw it at the cinema. Yeah, yeah. This one was at the movies. Everyone saw it, you're right. The box office will attest to that when we get to the awards in that section. And it ran for a long time. Like that poster, I recall at the cinema when I saw it, started to fade in the sun. It'd been out so long on the outdoor of the cinema. And again, we're back in those glory late 90s when I was seeing free movies at the commercial cinema around the corner. And, uh, yeah, I saw it then. I think I only saw it once. I've never really been a go-twice kind of a guy. How about you? Did you revisit it to sort of like try and pick it apart upon the second viewing at the cinema? Uh, I wonder if I saw this. Well, my parents uh, were separated. So oftentimes I might end up seeing a movie twice at the cinema just because I'd go once with mum and once with dad. Uh, <laughs> just wh- both competing for your affection. <laughs> Why did you laugh at that, Ben? This- <laughs> because I've been through the same thing myself. <laughs> oh, okay. So we, we, we are joyfully recounting childhood Trauma. Okay, great. Uh, uh, the, the question is, would they take you because they were both trying to compete with each other because they wanted to see the film. They're a single parent. There's no easy babysitter, so they have to take you anyway, despite you being on the younger side. Or was it a case that um, they just like seeing movies? Uh, all of the above. Pro- probably, yeah, like I'd say all of the above. Look, I, I don't actually know if I saw The Sixth Sense twice at the, at the movies, but I definitely saw it once. Um, and I've seen it. I guess tons of times on VHS and DVD, you know, since. And by tons, I probably mean three or four. (laughs) I hadn't seen it for, I'd say, at least 15 years until I saw it in preparation for this pod recording. And there was actually quite a lot I actually couldn't recall. It was really interesting to see a film that's such an iconic point in time in cinema history that defined this filmmaker as the guy with the twists at the end of every movie the guy, the guy that's been parried, parodied by in so many movies like Scary Movie, for example, 
um, a guy whose career has gone up and down and up again, to watch it like, I'd say 15, maybe even 20 years since I last saw it, it was actually really interesting because A, I didn't recall a lot about it, and B, I was just keen to sort of see if any of the clues, uh, the contrivance that was set up to try and place him, Bruce Willis, spoilers if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, actually in the scenes where you think he's alive until the very end you find out he's dead, was interesting to go back upon 20 years later. But can you tell me, when you first saw it, can you recall the reaction by the audience? Like, was it a situation where people gasped when the twist was revealed? I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't either. And it was back in the time when we didn't have social media and the same Reddit thread. So I think people kind of had this sort of unusual trust that you wouldn't share the twist. And even if they did try and spoil it, perhaps by yelling in the lobby of the movie theatre, um, like that episode with uh, Homer Simpson walking out of Return of the Jedi or The Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> and he walks past those people in the line and goes, Wow, what an ending. Who'd have thought Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father? Ah, oh, thank, thank you. Oh, thank you, Mr. Blow the Picture for me. <laughs> like, back then, that was the way you'd spoil a movie, like in person, because people just weren't on the internet in the same way. But I do... Re- but but there, there was the very famous incident where Nathan Lane the actor blurted out the ending while on Letterman or something. Ah, you're right, yeah. That would have been probably the easiest way to try and convey it on a mass scale, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's right. What a dick move. Yeah, I know. Was it actually intentional? I like you a lot, Nathan Lane, but... Was it accidental or intentional? Well, I mean, I don't think he has Tourette's, so I can only assume it was (laughs) intentional. I mean... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I do recall this sort of... uh, mass reaction where people sort of raked him over the coals for that because if you hadn't have seen it, like it, you are sincerely missing a key point in cinema history if you had that film spoiled before you see it. Like what was so amazing back then pre-internet, I mean, you know, pre-mass internet, was that you could see movies and be totally genuinely surprised, particularly if the trailer hadn't spoiled it already. And that trailer I recalled was one of those really cleverly crafted ones that lured you in, but you just had no idea as to what was coming. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, I don't even watch movies anymore. I just watch YouTube videos like called Ending Explained about the movie. You don't even need to watch them. Within a day or two of a movie even coming out, there's videos that just step you through the entire plot of the thing, you know. So I I can't imagine the ending of this and would have sort of sparked off the same sort of cultural touchstone. But I guess the ending of this is also one of those movies that has made everyone now so primed for guessing the guessing the ending. Like uh, when this sort of came out, you know, you get the occasional person on the playground because I was still in school being like, yeah, I picked it. I picked it. I knew he was dead from the beginning. Yeah, I picked it. Uh, <laughs> bit of a big shot. I picked it. <laughs> fucking check yeah. out Leonard Moulton over here. Oi, Mr. <laughs> fucking Cinema. Uh, I picked it. Anyway. It's so true, though, how certain movies can create a trend and then shape the way that we anticipate films subsequently. And the same thing's happened with Marvel movies. Like, my kids now watch the credits of every movie right through to the end of the credits because they've been inculcated to expect that there will be a credit sequence, a mid-credit sequence and an end-credit sequence 
to tease the next Marvel movie coming six months later. Oh, that's and that's quite that's quite nice for say like the mill foremans and the construction grips and the key construction grip and the camera scenic artists whose names will actually get read now. I agree entirely because <laughs> I was always that person in the movie cinema before the Marvel Cinematic Universe began, where I'd be sitting in the cinema, you know, watching Bad Boys Two, and I'd sit there and. On principle, I'd make my girlfriend sit with me and watch the credits right through to the end out of respect for every creator, craftsperson, lawyer, wow. um, dog handler involved. It was like a principle of mine. That must have been wonderful for her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be like, you'd lean over and you'd be like, wow, Susan McCarthy's the set dresser. <laughs> uh, did you know she was the set dresser on Chasing Amy too? <laughs> and she'd be like. Fuck. <laughs> She's still with me, so it's worked out. Oh, okay. Well, that's very nice. There you go. <laughs> All right. Let's move along because on about a month later, on the 10th of September 1999, Stir of Echoes was released, and here's its synopsis from IMDb. After being hypnotised by a sister-in-law, a man begins seeing haunting visions of a girl's ghost, and a mystery begins to unfold around him. So, Gabe... Four or five weeks after the Sixth Sense, did you, with uh, Leonard Moulton in the playground, go and see Stir of Echoes at the movies? No, I didn't see this at the cinema. I just had one of my friends explain the plot to me on a bushwalk or something, like a some sort of school-sponsored <laughs> bushwalk. I can't really remember. All I remember is sort of trudging through the, the bush. I don't know, maybe we were just sneaking to go have smokes or something. I don't know. And they were like, oh, and this happens and this happens. And this happens and he breaks a nail and finds a mummified corpse. And I was like, ah, I'll skip this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I avoided this, seeing this myself at the cinema because the name wasn't inspiring at all, which we'll get to in the awards. It came four weeks after The Sixth Sense and I had a hint that it was kind of similar in basic premise. Kevin Bacon, never really been a lead man for me, even though I like him a lot. What? I know. We'll get, we'll, oh, we're going to fight. We'll get there. We'll fight. Get your little fisty cuffs out. Yeah. And I just wasn't really inspired to see it. So I saw it for the first time about two days ago in preparation for the podcast. And I've got to say something, Gabe. Uh-huh. We mentioned this in a recent episode about seeing movies. I think it was about Red Eye and Flight Plan, how I miss non-superhero movies. And again, caveat, 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 I really do enjoy many of those superhero movies, but it's just the fact that the cinema, when it does open after the pandemic- has such an homogenous selection of movies and it's just superhero movies. And I see such stir of echoes and I think, I don't think they'd make that anymore. Like, they'd probably make something more like Freaky, which looks like this really fun film, which is a mishmash between Freaky Friday and a serial killer movie by Blumhouse or something like Happy Death Day, as in films that are horror films with perhaps a bit of comedy, uh, very much in the scream mould, where kids who are at home only have the mall or cinemas to escape to, to try and get away from their family. And so you make films for young boys and girls, like teenagers, and superhero movies, and that's it. Whereas having an adult protagonist in Stir of Echoes just doesn't feel like the sort of movie they'd release these days. And you mean theatrically, right? Theatrically. Right, yeah. right. Because, you know, David Coop teamed up with Kevin Bacon for a, you know, another horror, horror haunted house murder spooky movie just this year, but it was released to VOD. So Yeah, and it's hard to know if that would have been released at the cinema had there not been a pandemic. But 
Most of his movies in recent years have gone to Vaughn, well, haven't I've, they? I've seen uh, You Should Have Left, his most recent one, and I could fairly confidently say it uh, should not have been released to cinema. Oh, uh, ouch. Um, <laughs> there's not to say, like, I don't like David Coep. I mean, Mordecai, it's a classic. Yeah, a very small audience for it, I'd say. Okay, fair. Premium Rush, though, pretty good. I actually quite enjoyed that movie. Yeah, it's not bad. I like it. I agree. Um all right, anyway. Let's jump to our history lesson, how we got here, as to was it just coincidence or was there a bit of an argy-bargy as both studios competed to release similar movies at the same time? So let's start with The Sixth Sense. So, look, the story of M. Night Shyamalan has become pretty famous, but long story short, David Vogel, the then president of production of Walt Disney Studios, read Shyamalan's spec script and just loved it. But what's amazing, and this wouldn't happen these days because of, I guess you'd call it accounting accountability, because he, without obtaining corporate approval, bought the rights to the script for $3 million and agreed to the stipulation that only Shyamalan could direct the movie. Yeah, wow. And surprisingly, he was dismissed from his position. (laughs) Wait, wait. The guy who bought this got fired because he bought- the script for this film. For $3 million Fuck. without getting approval <laughs> for that. Wow. And agreeing that Shyamalan, Shyamalan? I'm mispronouncing it. M. Night Shyamalan? Yeah, Shyamalan. Sh- Shyamalan? Yeah, I feel like if I say this 10 times, I'm going to start stuffing it up, um, could actually direct it. I mean, um, have you seen Shyamalan's previous movies, Wide Awake and Praying with Anger? I haven't, but I've heard they're pretty bad. No, I mean, it's. I don't think it's unfair to say that a- movie about, you know, uh, what's her name? What's that lady's name? Rosie O'Donnell playing a nun trying to help some little boy find God, you know, particularly, I mean, maybe it's got the same plot as, uh, oh, my God, he just remade his own movie. (laughs) This is the dark version. That's right. Yeah. This is the Bizarro World universe. Well, apparently they were pretty uh, unhappy with him. They got rid of him. And then showing little confidence in the film, they sold the production rights to Spyglass Entertainment, but they did retain the distribution rights and 12.5% of the film's box office receipt, which in the end worked out pretty well for them. Um, Jumping across to Stir of Echoes, uh, I didn't know this at the time. It was actually based on a – is it a short story or or a book by Richard Matheson? I thought it was a novel. I think, uh, yeah, yeah, I couldn't get, I think it's a novel, like not a novella. So mm. um, I have not read this. Have you read this? No, it's from 1958. So you could never accuse Stir of Echoes of imitating The Sixth Sense at all. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because a classic case, this was written 40 years beforehand <laughs> and is very similar in its premise. Obviously, there are key differences. Uh, and the kid in Strobeco's isn't as central to the plot, but definitely enough to justify being a Twin Movies podcast episode. But it appears, once again, Gabe, it's just serendipity and there appears to be no connection between these two films being made simultaneously. Oh, wow. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. Um. (laughs) (laughs) So let's jump to our review of The Sixth Sense. Gabe, it's really hard to view this film objectively, but watching it again now, having watched it so many times over the last 21 years, did you like it? 
What doesn't float your boat? And is it a good execution of the common premise it shares with Stir of Echoes? Well, I'll take the last part first. Thanks, Ben. Um, I mean, it's much, much, much better than Stir of Echoes. And I think watching it, you can see why M. Night, you know, was sort of heralded as, you know, I guess potentially unfairly because the weight of the or the pressure of the of the moniker, but as the next sort of Spielberg or whatever, it is a pretty great, pretty great movie. Can I just jump in there before you continue with your review? Because this is something- That was the end of my review, Ben. Of course, you can jump in there. <laughs> <laughs> What's always bugged me about that comparison, I didn't really start questioning it till you know, a few years ago. Why Spielberg? Because Spielberg doesn't specialise in this genre. Spielberg's films are often cut quite quickly and are quite energetic- this film is a slow burn film and the camera movements are very deliberate. It reminds me a lot of many of the sequences, the quieter sequences in uh, The Boogie Nights or, in fact, any film by P.T. Anderson in terms of those I, slow camera movements left to right. I, I, I disagree, actually. I think Spielberg's movies are, are very deliberate. You know, you think of that very famous shot people like to talk about in Jaws where Chief Brody steps onto the barge and it's just a one and it just, you know, so I think Spielberg does quite a lot of incredibly well thought out and crafted, you know, um, uh, blocking, mise-en-scene, all that sort of stuff. So I can see why that's an apt comparison. I totally agree, though. It's not like Spielberg was pumping out horror movies, though, you know. But, uh, Spielberg doesn't famous for making spooky films. Yeah, I think it's more not their filmmaking style that's similar, but the fact that they're just wonder kinds. Ah, Spielberg yes. was 27 or so when he made... Duel. Duel. And Duel. And M. Night was, what, 29, 28? So wow. I think it was just the Wonderkind situation Fuck. where basically a filmmaker comes along, like Jaws, makes a film at a very young age, makes a lot of money, and people want to sort of give him the keys to the kingdom. We're such losers, man, at our age. Yeah. I remember when I was sort of my early 20s thinking, oh, I've got such a long runway of eight years until I'm the same age as M. Night to make my first $600 million box office movie. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, so how do you think it stands up after all this time? Like when you watched it now, having seen it before, but probably a few years since you last saw it, how does it stand up? And do you think it is the best execution of this premise in terms of having a, a twist and also the idea of someone seeing dead people. Yeah, I mean, I think if you said to someone, hey, what's the best movie about someone seeing dead people with a twist at the end where the protagonist was also dead, there's only one film they go to. <laughs> what do you think about the twist now? Like, twists have been given a bad name and M. Night's been raked over the coals for being too cliched and always trying to squeeze a twist into his movies. I myself like movies with a twist at the end as long as, of course, when you then go back and replay the movie in your mind, it all stands up. I think it's fair to say if the twist is there for the sake of it, just to basically say F you to the audience, it doesn't actually add any value to it. But if the twist makes you reconceptualise the movie you just saw and see it in a whole new light, and then that's actually perhaps more interesting, then the twist has value as long, again, as long as it's logical, the way that it's sort of then recalibrating the storyline before. Yeah. I mean, watching this again, it's sort of some of that stuff seems kind of obvious. Like it's a real filmmaker's trick that, you know, he's having very one-sided 
conversation, he being uh, Bruno's character, Dr. Hairplugs, whatever his name is, um, talking to Olivia Williams. It seems kind of obvious now, but I don't know. Again, it just felt like back then it was just much less obvious, you know, You'd, don't you think? Yeah, I recall that conversation you and I had with the producer of a screenplay, about a screenplay that you and I wrote, where they were sort of arguing that a film shouldn't use contrivances to fool the audience. And we actually referred to The Sixth Sense and Fight Club as examples of why that's totally okay. Like, you show what you want to show. So in The Sixth Sense, we see him talking to his wife at dinner who implicitly ignores him. We see him throw something out a window and then walk away in the distance. We see him watching and observing. There's that scene where he's sort of sitting on a chair by himself. Oh, sorry, sitting on a chair with Tony Collette's character, n- not talking to each other, and you think they're just waiting for Cole to arrive home, which that which she is and so is he, but you don't realise at the time that he's a ghost and she's not actually communicating with him. You don't see how he enters the room or how he leaves the room. So the filmmaker deliberately leaves out details that would actually reveal he's a ghost. But that's fine because that's just storytelling. I mean, most storytelling is subjective. It's through the imagination or perspective of a narrator. And in a book, you just accept that. So from my point of view, if a filmmaker wants to show you just pieces 1, 2, 7, 19 and 32 in the story, in the puzzle... Who cares? That's that's sort of the craft of filmmaking, of storytelling. Mm. It doesn't really seem controversial to me. <laughs> that just seems like good filmmaking. I think that perhaps the situation, isn't it, with Reddit threads these days and people always wanting to try and unpick something and to be contrary. Like that's the part I hate about contemporary film criticism. And, I'm not, and I use that word criticism very loosely because I wouldn't call a lot of the Reddit threads or memes to be sophisticated in their criticism, but this idea of... Do you mean people pointing out plot holes, just that kind of thing, like, oh, the movie failed because there's a plot hole. Yeah, that's fucking stupid. Yeah, exactly. Plot holes and also just being contrary. Who's that reviewer? I think his name's Armand White. Oh, yeah. Do you know him? He's very famous for having terrible, terrible taste. (laughs) Yeah. He basically essentially looks at what everyone else says about a film and takes the reverse review. So he'll say that Michael Bay's Transformers, the second movie, uh, what is it, The Fallen something, Fallen Kingdom? No, whatever, you know, is like a masterpiece, but then he'll criticise a film that everyone else might love, like Portrait of a Lady on Fire or Midsummer or something, and say that it's a piece of schlock. Like right. it's so predictable. And I almost feel that Armand White in some ways as a film critic, is basically like the worst of the internet in terms of just being contrary for the sake of it. Oh, you like it? Therefore, I don't like it. And I sort of feel that's the way it's gone with people trying to, like, criticise any movie with a twist. I mean, I'm not going to really defend Armand White, but at least he's a real critic. I mean, just some, you know, dos cunt on the internet called, like, uh, you know, 69 Your Mum Lamau posting their, like, four, you know, uh, goofs that retroactively ruin a movie. I mean, that's that's sort of worse. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Like, at least Armour White has a reasonable argument where he puts premise plus premise together to get his conclusion and he can actually use the evidence of the movie to try and support it. Now, 
I think the way he uses the evidence to try and hold up, say, a Transformers movie being better than, say, Schindler's List to be uh, not particularly convincing, but at least he puts forward a cohesive argument. Um, So anyway, I think basically the point being movies with twists don't necessarily have to be a cop-out or bad, but some people just don't like movies with twists because of the way that bad twist movies came about after The Sixth Sense including some by M. Night Shyamalan himself. Yeah, that's sort of an interesting phenomenon that people expected the twist so much from him that you went to the movie being like, what's the twist going to be? Which sort of puts in a sort of undue pressure on his movies, although he kept delivering movies with twists, you know, the village, the twist in that or, you know. Can you quickly summarise the twist on all of his subsequent movies? Uh, What was after this? Fuck. Um, Well, The Village... It turns out they're all in like a national park. Is that that's what that one was? Um, yep, that's right. In contemporary times, what was the lady in the water? The twist was uh, it's total garbage. Um, What's total garbage? The film. <laughs> um, uh, I can't remember the twist in science. Is, I guess is the twist in Lady in the Water that M Night Shyamalan's character was going to save the world. I can't even recall. I don't think it had the same sort of impactful twist as normal, but something like that. That's right. Oh yeah, signs. I guess that what that the aliens are allergic to water. Yep. Although that's just a basically a rip of War of the Worlds, right? Isn't that the same? I don't know. I've I can't recall watching any versions of War of the Worlds. I I, I recall a version of Tom Cruise running. It's a, it's a good movie. Watch it. Right, okay. Unbreakable? Oh, Unbreakable. Uh, that he's a superhero? Yeah, and Samuel L. Jackson is a supervillain. Yeah. And did and set the whole thing up. Yeah. To be fair, Unbreakable's good, and everyone retrospectively now likes that movie. It's one of those movies that went through a huge sort of cultural reappraisal. Yeah, can we do a little quick segue on Unbreakable? I think it is one of the best, most progressive and... Uh, ahead of its curve, postmodern superhero films of all time. Like, you could release that film right now, 20 years later, and I actually think it's a fantastic commentary on where we're at with superhero movies. Um, it's so well done. And apparently, I think, it, I think it was going to be the first third of a feature film or something like that. So essentially, he was going to have a trilogy of movies and he then s- stretched out the first third of the movie to become unbreakable. Right. And then sp- split and glass were the rest of it? Like, Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think Unbreakable is a, a really, really well-made movie and quite moving and interesting. Mm. And I actually prefer it more than The Sixth Sense, I think. Yeah, right. Fair enough. Um, so what about you? I mean, you hadn't watched The Sixth Sense in 15 15- Years you said before that there was things that you totally forgotten or that I mean did it hold up for did it hold up for you Yeah, it did. But I'll say, I said it before and I'll say it again. It's so weird to watch a slow burn movie these days because I don't feel I'd see that at the movies anymore. It feels like this would be a TV show or something like that. I really enjoyed it. There are just so many scenes I can't recall because I think I was so transfixed by the really vivid scenes like. Misha Barton <laughs> vomiting and the tension as to her being underneath the uh, tent. Yeah. Um, I hadn't seen it back in the day to kind of like reinterrogate the movie to see if it stood up, but this time I did. So what tricks was a filmmaker using to try and convince me that Bruce Willis was alive, and which is what I'd accept from the start being the natural starting place for a movie. 
But what did he do so that if you watch the film again, it'll stand up? Oh, I know. He actually delivered a Bruce Willis performance where he seemed like he was alive. Yeah, but see, I, this is the funny thing. Bruce Willis has delivered the same performance in other movies and it doesn't work at all. And you just feel like Bruce Willis is like cashing in um, and isn't actually present for the movie. And I kind of think that it might be the same. Have you heard the story as to how he was cast in this movie? No, no, tell me. Oh, so this is quite amazing. Um, I'll pull forward uh, shorter Kudas for casting and stuff, but essentially he was on a movie, I can't recall the name, and that shot about 20 days of this Disney movie and it was going terribly, just going absolutely terribly. So he pulled the pin. What happened was then Disney said, okay, you owe us a movie or you owe us two movies. So he reluctantly did this movie because he was forced to do it. He didn't choose to do it. He had to do it as part of his kind of get out of jail contract with Disney. And the irony being the film he had to do reluctantly to try and pay back the expensive disaster of a film that was never finished before end up basically kind of kickstarting his career again, I'd say, because it had been Pulp Fiction 94 and then a bit like um, John Travolta, but not as bad. He kind of made some odd choices. And then this kind of like boosted him up again, you know, in those late 90s. Um, and now he's making all those films that have bizarre names like Hard Kill, Straight to Kill, Dead to Kill, and many other films on uh, Video On Demand. But I kind of think that this sort of performance for here has been a bit sleepy. I don't know how intentional that was, but it worked for this film incredibly well. Yeah, totally. So anything that you noticed on the other reviewing before we jump on to Stir Echoes, I mean, like the touches of red was apparently a feature that there'd be details of red littered throughout the film that were meant to signify when he was interacting with the real world, like the red door handle. Oh, were there any other things that sort of jumped to mind that you thought, oh, that's a nice touch that you hadn't noticed in the first viewing? I mean, I hadn't noticed that in any viewings, to be honest, that red business, you know. I'm a pretty dumb guy. Uh, no, I mean, very broadly, I think, you know, like to touch on the technical aspects of this movie, it's nicely shot, it's nicely cut, the music is very good, it's nicely directed, the art direction is excellent, it's very well cast, Um Everyone, uh, uh, I think, performs really well. And you can kind of see why Haley Joel Osment went on to things and then disappeared from things and then re-emerged fat. <laughs> um, I think he is incredible in this film. I thought when I first saw the film, but to watch it again now, I think he's so good. And I mean, he makes it, right? Like He makes it. Like I've said it before, I'll say it again. The Americans do a lot of things in filmmaking really well, but I think one of the best things they do, if not the best thing, is casting. Mm. Like, mm. I don't know how you find a kid of that age who A, can act to be believable, but is actually perfectly cast. Um, I thought it was incredible. Apparently, um, when they were trying to cast that role, M. Night wanted a brunette kid with her dark eyes who'd look a little bit darker in terms of like perhaps um, more mysterious. Uh, and this kid came in, little cherry with blonde hair and blue eyes. But apparently it was his fragility and um, maturity in a younger body that sort of sold M. Night to cast him. And I think he's just incredible. I mean, yeah. And he'd been, he'd been it's, it's one of those things like I've edited a lot of TV shows and things like that that have had kids in them. And often when you're cutting a kid's performance, you have to put a lot of edits in. You know, they might be, you're joining lots of different takes where they're like, this line was good in this one and this one was good in this one. But 
it's very nice in this movie that M. Night is able to hold on shots with Haley Joel Osment, you know, so like the one where he's staring past his mum and they're in the car and they're talking about the woman who died in the car accident and it just it just sits on the shot and that creates some really nice yeah. sort of suspense. But that's really because the kid is good, you know? Yeah. You don't actually have to cut around his performance to make his performance. Yeah. It's just there on camera. Yeah. Good on him. Cole, you're scaring me. They scare me too sometimes. They? Ghosts. All right, let's switch lanes to our detailed review of Stir of Echoes. Uh, Gabe, tell me what did you like, what grinded your gears, and if it didn't do a better version than The Sixth Sense, what did it do well? Uh, I mean, this movie's all right, isn't it? Like, it's it's okay. Uh, it's kind of forgettable, but I like Kevin Bacon. I like Eliana Douglas. I don't know. <sighs> It's one of those movies that sort of drifts from your conscience not too long after you've seen it. And in many ways, the trailer was better than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the trailer had that, you really it was cut around that, uh, the Rolling Stones song, Paint It Black. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I watched this about a week ago and I have to say, if you said, hey, who were the villains in this movie? I'd be like, was it like the two kids? Uh, and then I think it made... Is this just spooky Mystic River? Oh, yeah, that's a cool realisation. I think you're right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I, and I, for weirdly, I keep thinking Stir of Echoes is set in Boston, but it's not. It's set in Chicago, but, like, it just feels like it's set in Boston. And, you know, it turns out, yeah, that the two kids murdered the, the girl and I don't know. I just, I like it. I, I was a bit mean to David Coop before, who's, you know, extra, screenwriter extraordinaire, but, God... Did this movie get its lunch at by the sixth sense? Yeah, it's just unfortunate. I mean, who would have thought you go to do an adaptation of a 1958 book from 40 years before and then, you know, the sixth sense comes out and it's like one of the most successful films of all time. It's bad luck. Um, from my point of view, look, I enjoyed elements of Stir of Echoes. I can't tell you a lot about the middle part of the movie. Like it takes a long time to get to where it becomes interesting to me. I mean, essentially we've seen this before, right? It's someone who goes on a descent into madness while on a quest. Right. And his quest is sparked by visions of the ghosts. Right. I do think those visions could have been more interesting and there could have been like a longer journey of clues. Yeah. Essentially he realises that someone died implicitly in the house and then there seems to be about 30 minutes where he's digging up the house. And mm. it would have been more interesting if he actually had gone out on little missions, like, you know, interviewed someone at school or uh, spoken more to uh, who's that balding dad across the road um, who appears and everything. He's totally, uh, um, hey, it's that guy. Kevin Dunn. Kevin Dunn. Like, you know, ramp up the tension there. Like they, he goes for beers and Kevin Dunn's getting increasingly defensive and so is the bald landlord. But more than just tear up the house, I felt like mm. how many times are we going to see him go, actually, maybe I can get under the concrete and in the backyard. Like the movement of the story just moved progressively through various elements of debris. Right, okay. <laughs> Rather than perhaps 
maybe assembling clues, which I think would have been more interesting because mm. I find any depiction of Descent into Madness to be as boring on screen as drug taking. It's like, well, I'm sure they had a great time making it and I'm sure they had a great time acting because look at them, they're acting. Right. But to watch it, I just find it so boring. I just, it's laborious. I, I like... Uh- both of those things in movies. Um, but Yeah, you love that in our review of The World's End versus, what's the other one? The End of the Earth or something. And this is the end, totally. But, like, I think I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think of a movie which is both about a, you know, which is about a, a descent into madness and also ironically features a character who turns out to be dead at the end, although Stir of Echoes does not do that, but The Sixth Sense does. Oh, like, I'm going to guess. Can I, can I guess? All right, hit me. Jacob's Ladder. Exactly. And that is much more interesting um, in the way that the sort of the visions are presented and that character's kind of descent into into hell. So, yeah, I mean, this doesn't stand up very well against that and Jacob's Ladder was made, what, like 10 years before it. So it's like, well... Yeah, late 80s, yeah. Yeah, try and, you know, top that. What Jacob's Ladder does great is that if you're a detective investigating something and you feel like you're being followed... Those people following you could be ghosts, but you don't think of that. You think that perhaps they're baddies of some sort. That, to me, is a much more interesting way to try and blend those worlds, the undead and humans, whereas this one, he has flashbacks, but you wouldn't say he's really haunted, would you? Like, as in, like, he isn't – well, let me rephrase that. He's haunted by the visions and he sees things and that kind of impairs him to be engaged in the present – but they don't cause him any harm. No, they just they just ruin his sex life. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, by the way, what do you think of the kid? Another small kid who sees ghosts compared to Haley Joel Osman. Well, he's not. I mean, I mean, this kid's got smaller screen on time. Smaller screen on time. <laughs> uh, he's not. I mean, he's not as good as smaller screen time. He's certainly not as good as Haley Haley Joel. Is he? No, he's not. Um, look, I think he does the best of what he can do, but he isn't the shared protagonist. No. I think in Sixth Sense, both Bruce Willis and Haley Joel share the role equally, whereas in this film, it's very much more Kevin Bacon's movie. Yeah, definitely. And, um, I mean, I really like Kevin Bacon in in movies, so Kevin Bacon's, uh, he, he, helped me, uh, he helped me with this one, you know? Yeah, yeah. Let me say something about the ending. So we find out at the very end that these two teenagers who are brothers, one seems a bit more, I guess, Machiavellian and the other one seems a bit goofy, uh, accidentally kill this woman that, oh, sorry, a young girl who the older brother was about to sexually assault. So it's an accident. So they didn't mean to murder her, but it's probably manslaughter because what they were doing was criminal anyway. Doesn't that make it felony murder? Oh, felony murder. There you go. Look at you, Perry Mason. <laughs> Fuck yeah, man. No, I've just watched enough, uh, you know. Law and Order? I, I don't know if it does, uh, you know, if, if if anyone knows for sure. But, yeah, I've watched enough. Uh, Maybe throughout the rest of this podcast I can just do that uh, Law and Order music. Dun, dun. Would you feel at home to do that? Yeah. And then, or yeah. we can object, objection, Your Honour. Anyway, felony murder. They'd done it. They'd done it. Yeah. So what's confusing at the end is that Kevin Dunn comes to see what has been discovered by Kevin Bacon, discovers the dead body, and then Kevin Dunn reveals that he knew and he covered it up. Okay. So we have that kind of revelation. He has a gun 
he seems to be threatening to kill Kevin Bacon, but then kind of like just sort of says leave, mm-hmm. which is a bit confusing because what's what's the plan here? Is he going to kill himself mm-hmm. um, or kill cops who might burst down into the uh, um, what do you call it the cellar? I don't know what his objective is, but then what becomes more confusing is then the other guy, the landlord, um, Harry, played by Connor O'Farrell, I think, he turns up with one of the brothers, which is a bit weird, like not his son, but one of uh, Kevin Dunn's kids, and then he's killed. Mm-hmm. So what's the story here? Do we imply that basically the two teenagers accidentally kill the girl they were referred to as a, quote, a retard, I think, but she isn't that way at all on screen. She just seems like an introvert. And then what perhaps in doing a renovation, has Harry Connor O'Farrell helped Kevin Dunn as a mate by concealing the body? Is that what we're meant to believe? I guess so. Are you saying it seems unnecessarily convoluted? Well, why is Connor O'Farrell part of this? I don't understand. I, I guess because he's the landlord, so that's the... The connection there, right? Oh, I get it. It's a critique on capital. You see, <laughs> you see, within any building that's actually owned by someone, there's always going to be the the, you know, the bodies and the ghosts of the 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 poor people on which it was built atop. Right. Okay. Um, well, it just I have no idea, Ben, to be honest. I think you're right. It seems weirdly convoluted. You see the flashbacks of the girl being killed and, yeah, they, they put the bag over her head but it's just the boys, right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm just not sure why there's two adults trying to conceal this. Um, it seems like one adult too many. Yes, I would agree. Keep it lean and clean. Lean and clean. Yeah. Um, okay. And then it would have been great perhaps to have, say, Kevin Bacon be forced to defend his family by killing Kevin Dunn, his best mate, who he doesn't want to kill. That, to me, would have been a much more impactful and interesting ending than killing the landlord. True. True. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any, any final thoughts before we move on? No, I would say if you're in the market for a, well, late 90s milk toast spooky movie, Stare of Echoes is for you. Milk toast. I love milk toast. <laughs> okay, let's move on to our combined review. <laughs> Which movie has aged better? Is that a trick question? <laughs> the sixth sense, I think we know. All right, any uh, plot holes or missed opportunities? I've just given a few examples about how I think they could have ended the sixth sense. Sorry, stir of echoes better. How about you? Well, 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 I I guess I was surprised when I rewatched the sixth sense how late in the story the solving ghost mysteries came. For some reason, I recalled more of that business, like that little little Haley Joel would be out, like he's, he'd be out there cracking crimes from like halfway through, but it's like almost the last quarter that he meets um, ghost Misha Barton and finds out that, you know, her stepmother or whatever was poisoning her. Yeah, I think it's... And maybe that's maybe that's our sequel pitch, you know, maybe it's, you know... Child Detective Ghost Agency. It's actually quite similar to me to Unbreakable, M. Night's subsequent movie, where towards the very end, Bruce Willis, the protagonist in that film, realises that he has his actual mission is to stop these supervillains. Mm. And that happens like in the last like 15 minutes or so, whereas for the entire film he's not sure why he has this superpower. And similarly, Haley Joel doesn't realise why he has this superpower to see dead people until they kind of put two and two together and realise, oh, okay, there's something that has to be solved or resolved for them. Exactly. No, I agree. I, I was surprised. 
And without biting off too much of our, you know, uh, sequel pitches, Story of Echoes does end with the little boy there, you know, getting freaked out by the number of ghosts that surround him as if, you know, uh, no matter where they move, he will always be 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 a little boy haunted. <laughs> All right, let's jump to trivia, some behind the scenes. Now, I'll throw it to you. Are there any particular stories or um, urban legends that you want to share about these movies? Um, I don't know, Ben, are there? <laughs> uh, I, is there I, something I, I'm supposed to know? <laughs> no, I take that as a no. Okay. Oh, okay. No, no. Um, all right, I'll give you a few. So oh. Donnie Wahlberg lost 43 pounds for the role of Vincent Gray in the opening sequence. I love Wahlberg. I, I've forgotten about that sequence. <sighs> I, that, that's an example of something i completely forgotten about. Oh, really? Yep. Wow. And I didn't even recognise Donnie Wahlberg ah. at all. Donnie Wahlberg, this role and the role he plays in the phenomenally awesome, totally underrated and much disliked movie Dreamcatcher. Oh, man. They're, a, they're an I doubt it's double. I doubt it's so good. If, if you've seen Dreamcatcher, you'll know about I doubt it's. You'll know. Uh, he, here's some more um, trivia, Gay, that will thrill you as an editor. It will. The entire film, The Sixth Sense, was filmed in sequence. What? Really? Do you want to explain how bizarre that is? Oh, that, I mean, usually when you shoot a movie, you know, you want to maximise, say, um, a location. So you'll shoot out a location. You know, you'd shoot all of the scenes in the school over, you know, however many days and then move on to the next location. You wouldn't continually return somewhere because location moves, transpo, all that sort of shit is a real, you know, pain in the neck. So, wow. I know. Are you? Expensive. Is that for real? Yep. For real? Wow. Yeah, for reals. Yeah. Huh. Uh, another little detail. The movie was rented by 80 million people in 2000, making it the year's top-rated VHS and DVD title. God, I miss video stores. <laughs> Um, apparently, in an early draft of the script, Bruce Willis's character was a crime scene photographer, not a child psychologist, which is bizarre because the film works because he has a reason to interact with this kid. Mm. So that's a really, I think, significant change. I wonder if that was just a very different story. You know? Yeah, perhaps so. Um, apparently, on the early DVD... Because you were saying that you missed the days of VHS and DVD. Oh, God, I do. If the main menu was left idle enough, a ghost would walk past the breakfast table on the screen. Ooh. Don't you just miss that kind of thing with DVD uh, menus? You know, you could input a code and watch Memento in reverse chronological, reverse, un- watch Memento. What would you call reverse Reverse, reverse chronological order. Uh, you could just watch it in chronological order, I believe. That what it doesn't two negatives cancel each other out? Well, you'd think so, but um, yes. So, or on Borat, you could if you. This one's a little bit uh, spicy. The Borat DVD. If you selected um, Hebrew subtitles, Borat would appear and make some anti-Semitic jokes. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yep. Yep. It was a different time. Well, different time. Different time. Um, you'd like this, uh, speaking of the make your movies, apparently M. Night pitched the film as a cross between The Exorcist and Ordinary People. I get that. I get that. Yeah, I like that. Um, I mentioned earlier that Bruce Willis had to basically do his time on this movie. Apparently he was paid $10 million, which is actually half of his usual salary at the time. So that's why perhaps he was so mopey. <laughs> he was getting paid half as much. Wow. Only 10 million. Yeah, only 10 million. 
Um, interestingly, Tony Collette and Hale Jolie, Jolie? Hale Jolie. Haley Joel Osman? Haley Joel. Holy Jolie Jolie. Man, it's early this morning. Uh-huh. Um, both Oscar nominated. I actually had forgotten that Tony Collette was Oscar nominated. That's amazing. Yeah, this was nominated for, I think, five or six? Six, six Oscars? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't get a lot of um, horror movies being nominated for Best Picture. You love to see it. <laughs> you do. Um, let's jump to Stuart of Echoes Trivia. I think you'll be, well, unsurprised that there aren't as many, you know, details on the internet because there aren't as many fans of Stuart of Echoes. Um, is there anything that you'd like to share, Gabe, that you learnt about in doing your research? <laughs> um, well, uh um there there is that uh well known piece of trivia uh from this movie uh that uh the writers guild of america denied andrew kevin walker a screen, screenplay credit for his script doctoring work so he just gets a special thanks wow did you just sort of like realize that straight away while surfing the internet in real time <laughs> i did not surf the internet in real time to find a interesting piece of trivia i did scroll past some actual garbage pieces of trivia I'm like why is this interesting you said <laughs> there's less fans of this movie so there's less trivia apparently having less fans doesn't stop people putting such inane shit up on imdb fuck <laughs> uh, i mean the andrew kevin walker one is actually quite interesting that guy was like the go to Script doctor in the late 90s, wasn't he? Wow. Yeah, totally. Uh, okay. Um, I couldn't find any interesting news regarding casting what a shoulda, couldas, although Tony Collette was actually in uh, America for another film and just basically kind of just auditioned on a whim for this movie, which is quite a remarkable, just, just good luck that she basically threw a hat in the ring and therefore earned an Oscar nomination. And basically that pretty much cemented her entry into the US film production uh, landscape. Um, Spot the Aussie, it'd have to be Tony. (laughs) Uh, Yes, true. Can you think of anyone else in any other movie? I can't think of Stir of Echoes having any Aussies in those movies. It's very contained. Uh, Yeah, no, I didn't didn't see an Australian in that. Okay, let's move on to Big Trouble and Little Production. Um, It appears that both these films were reasonably seamless uh, when they were produced at the time. I did personally notice something, though, watching it uh, on my big screen TV in HD. Uh, you can really notice the there's an aerial shot they do of Bruce Willis's wig. <laughs> it's it's really weird. He goes downstairs uh, to do his work, you know, his little desk down there in the in the cellar, and I don't know why they choose that camera angle because it really does show the glue and the makeup. Um, and I would have thought it'd be quite obvious on the big screen watching at the movies, but. I guess that's just something that's advanced more since then. Wig technology. Well, yeah, I mean, his hair plugs are fairly noticeable in this movie. And, you know, this was the, towards the end, I would say, of him wearing hair pieces. Yeah, I can't recall. I mean, he wore a hairpiece in that movie, the one that's that, like that camp where he's doing it. Um, Wait, with Fifth Element? No, no, not not a camp movie, but oh. he's at a summer camp. Oh, uh, with um, Ed Norton. What's that movie again? Oh, the Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the Scout Trip one, whatever it's called. I That's right. Remember. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. he had a hairpiece in that, right? But but yeah, in the late nineties, yeah. you know, he he started giving it up. Yeah, which is a shame. I'd like to see, you know, what was that movie where he's like, he's he's hunting down robots. 
Surrogates. Surrogates. He's got some. Cl- he's got some classic. He brought back some classic hair pieces in that. Oh yeah, yeah. With oh, I loved it. A long fringe. I loved it. <laughs> oh, so great. Uh, okay, let's jump to box office. Okay. <laughs> Surprise me, Ben. <laughs> Surprise you. I'm, I'm not going to even you know do the question to ask you. So the sixth sense. It cost forty million dollars. It made $293.5 million domestically in the States plus $379.5 million internationally for a grand total of $673 million. Wow. It creamed it. Stir Echoes, released four weeks later, made for 12. Very contained movie in comparison, like one location more or less. Unfortunately, only did $21 million domestically, Apparently, there's no reporting of any international figures, but I'm pretty sure it was released internationally. But the worldwide total sitting here on Box Office Mojo is $21 million. So, um, interesting. Um, and there was a sequel, which we'll get to. Oh, have I seen the sequel? <laughs> You're an absolute magnet for, like, terrible knockoff sequels on video on demand, so I'm sure you would have. Oh, yeah, Rob Lowe's in it. I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. I recall nothing of it. <laughs> okay, Rotten Tomatoes. Don't want to disappoint anyone. Which film do you think impressed the critics and charmed the fans? Mm. The Sixth Sense, 86% on the tomato meter. The question is, how much higher do you think that is compared to Stir of Echoes? I think, I think surely Stir of Echoes has reasonable reviews. It's not a bad movie. Agreed. 67%. Yeah, that's all right. Now, this will surprise you. Have a guess the scores for what that's worth with fans for either movie. Wait, say that again? Well, compare compare these two movies. Which film do you think? Obviously, The Sixth Sense is more popular. How much more popular do you think it was with audiences than Stir of Echoes? Oh, much more popular. Not really. Oh. 90% versus 70%. Oh, I see. That surprises me. Hmm. All right. Let's jump to the awards, Gabe. It's awards time. Do you want to sing a song? Do you want me to sort of introduce it with a bit of, you know, sort of some some sweet, sweet lyrics? Okay. Or should we just jump straight into the awards? I don't know. Like what lyrics have you got? Are they they thematically apt? It's the awards, yeah, yeah. It's the awards, yeah, yeah. Get on the awards. Get on the awards. Get on the awards. That's horrible. (laughs) All right, best title, Gabe. The Sixth Sense. Uh, I agree. I don't like Stir of Echoes at all. It sounds like it's a... Cooking recipe book or something. I don't know. I don't mind it. It sounds, it sounds kind of spooky. I was watering the garden earlier today and I was thinking to myself, I wonder how they came up with that. They were like just combining words. A mix of echoes. I think the sixth sense is more evocative. Uh, stir of echoes? Uh, well, everyone knows about like a sixth sense as well. You're like, ooh. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Ooh. All right. Best poster. Now, can you please describe to our podcast listeners what either poster looks like before we begin our comparison. Okay, so we're just going to go off the the default IMDb poster, like the first one that appears. So the Yeah, but which doesn't actually appear to be the one I remember seeing at the movies. But why don't you describe it? Well, for the sixth sense, it's a a poster that says it has a what do you call it? Like a a list of of the senses. Yep. Uh, one sight, two sound, three smell, four taste, five touch, and six child. Oh, no. It doesn't really explain what the sixth is. It's just a child atop the number six. Oh, with a burning six in the background. Yeah. Yeah, so you'd be like, oh, spooky. It looks like Soroman's eye Ooh. as depicted in The Lord of the Rings. 
Yes, exactly. And then the stir of Echo's poster is Kevin Bacon's big head and he's looking through a doorway and then there's variously scratchy images around it that are that are that conjure, you know, uh, a sense of like dread, like a scratchy girl looking at light bulb, scratchy child, scratchy Kevin Bacon's abs. It has, a, has that nicotine stain aesthetic that was very common around the time of I like Three it. Kings and Fight Club. Well, it's very like Silent Hill or something like that. I don't know if you ever played the video game Silent Hill. Great games, great games. Um, but, yeah, so look, uh, what was the Sixth Sense poster that you remember, though, I guess? I think it w- You said before. Yeah, I think it was an image of... Bruce Willis's head. Okay. I can't recall. Um, Was it just his big spooky head looking back over his shoulder? Yeah, and I think it had like then the six number and the boy in front of that six in the same way. Right. But, I mean, look, I don't think any of those Sixth Sense posters were very good at all. Like I didn't see the movie because of the poster. I thought the posters were pretty terrible. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I think. The Strebeko's post is terrible as well. Well, let's give it to neither. All right. No winner. Okay. Good. Done. Good. Uh, moving on. The Bill Fleck Big Rake Award, named after American actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Who jumped from an indie film into the Hollywood big time when they starred in either of these movies? Starting with Sixth Sense. I mean, why do we even need to start with Sixth Sense? Let's just toss Stir of Echoes out from this one because, goddamn, Sixth Sense has a few, right? Yep. Tony Collette. Tony Collette. Haley Joel Osmond. M. Knight. M. Knight, yep. I mean, all of them pretty much got I, their careers off the back of this. I, I'd give it to Haley Joel. What do you think? Because he essentially, I think, was the biggest beneficiary of the movie, not long term, but at the time. Um, or M. Knight. Or M. Knight. Oh, it's actually maybe M. Knight. I mean, he wrote it, he directed it, and. He's in it. He's in it. Yeah, okay. M. Knight, done. There you go. Okay. Before they were famous award or blink and you'll miss them, starting with the sixth sense. Donnie Wolp. I don't know. Tony Collette. Uh, Misha, Misha Barton. Oh, Misha Barton. Yeah, Misha Barton. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for all you uh, OC fans out there. Yep, I agree. Because that was a bit of a blink and you miss them one. Yep. How about Stir of Echoes? Stir of Echoes. I don't know. Is there any blink and you? What do you think? No? No? No. Who's that woman? Who plays the sister? I think it's Alina Douglas. Oh, she's great. I love Ileana Douglas. I mean, she was kind of famous already. She'd been in that really powerful scene. I think it was in, was it Cape Fear? It was Cape Fear. Yeah, yeah. And he bites her cheek. It's awful. Yeah. Um, I always recall her from then. But she'd also be a contender for, hey, it's that guy or that gal. So that's a tough one. Um, I think she was already established by this stage. So it can't be her. Um, I can't think of anyone. Like no one really kicked on, did they? Like we didn't see those two teenage boys kick on, all the girls. The kid didn't kick on to anything, did he? No, it's literally his only credit. Oh, he's got one before that. Actually, there was someone, Jennifer Morrison. Mm -hmm. She's the blonde actress from House and Once Upon a Time. Uh, I don't know what those are. I think she... I think she was the daughter, oh, Samantha, I see. that was murdered. Really? In which case, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I think she was. Yep. Well, there you go. So okay. she, she would. There you go. Oh, so. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good one you found there, Ben. But uh, Is it her or Misha Barton? Misha Barton. Misha Barton wins. Yeah. 
All right. The Tommy Lee Jones Stiller Award, named after his iconic performance in The Fugitive. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? Johnny Wahlberg. He was good, wasn't he? I mean, there wasn't much to do, but he was very good in that tiny role. I agree. I thought Tony Collette was very good as well, but I wouldn't call her role being mm-hmm. small. Uh, no, she's she's the second build character. Yeah, you know, even but 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 like I think Donnie Wahlberg does a really great job, and you know, it's a tough role. He doesn't go full R word, you know, um, and he's only in like four shots, but very memorable yeah. in his tidy whiteies. I agree. I do think, though, Olivia Williams doesn't get enough love. I mean, you never think of this movie and think of her, but I think she's also very good in that role. It's not really a show-stealing performance, but I do think that she has a very difficult role to play to try and be – to try and sort of, you know, imbue that character with empathy. So, okay, I'll lean with your choice of Donnie Wahlberg. How about Sturavekas? Anyone there? Uh, No. No? No no one stole the show? I mean, no. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah, All right, Donnie gets it. Donnie, well done. Nice. Your uh, Tommy Lee Jones Show Still Award is waiting in Australia for you when it's right to travel. Okay, the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. Who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films? Starting with The Sixth Sense. Hmm. I'd have Olivia Williams here. I can't think that she really kind of like made the most of her opportunity. But she, I mean, she was in almost four movies a year for. She just she was cranking them out. After I'm just surprised she wasn't actually in a franchise or something like Rachel White's and the Mummy. Like something to really kind of like try and earn some serious coin. No, and sadly, I suppose lots of these movies she appeared in after this, but. Are movies that you don't, you know, the man from Elysian Fields, you know, like, oh, I sort of remember. That's where Mick Jagger, I think, played the devil and it was about like gigolos or below the submarine movie, but they're not particularly well regarded or remembered movies, are they? Just weirdos like me have seen them. No. Lucky Break, The Body, Born Romantic, Dead Babies, yeah, Four Dogs Playing Poker. Yeah. I've never heard of any of these movies, so um, I don't think she made the most of her opportunities. I mean, yeah, totally. How about Stir of Echoes? I think everyone, I mean, those teenage kids could have done more, but they weren't actually in the film that much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think anyone really wasted their opportunity from those movies. No. Maybe the kid could have been in more movies, like in the same way that Hayley Joel was in, like, Paying It Forward or whatever it is and so on. Maybe Zachary David Cope, who played Jake, could have tried, you know, his parents could have actually tried to push for some more cash to pay for private school. Ha! Yeah, Hayley Joel. Though after this, what did he do? He's in Secondhand Lions and AI. Then I guess he went to school or something. He grew up. He grew up. He outgrew that cute kid and grew a beard. Now he's just, no, he didn't. Now he looks just like that cute kid, only he has a beard. And he's a bit more overweight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so he's fat bearded version of the cute kid. Yeah. Apparently he's reached a point now in his career, he was recently reported saying that he's kind of like, found comfort now with the role. Like, obviously, for a while, he he grew up, he went through puberty, he became a man, he studied, he kind of didn't want to be associated with that character anymore, and now he's kind of, like, done full circle where he's changed his look so much. He said he grew a beard to try and 
hide from the world, but I think the beard was as useful to actually try and visually distinguish flashbacks to that earlier ca- that earlier role he played. Mm. Um, I'm, yeah. I mean, how many times in his life do you think some yeah. jerk-offs come up to him and been like, stay the line, stay the line. Stay the line, Bart. I see dead people. Yeah! Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, who gets the uh, the Mickey Rourke? I don't know. Who gets it? You tell me. I think it's going to be Olivia Williams. Okay, give it to Olivia Williams. She's a great actor and I wish she'd, we'd see her in more. Like films that are theatrically released or on TV or promoted from VOD rather than these movies that just seem to disappear through the cracks. Mm. All right, the winner winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies, either in front of the camera or behind? And was their career high? Well, again, let's just toss Stir of Echoes to the side and say Sixth Sense, Bruce, Haley, Tony, M. Night. Yeah, I think Bruce probably he had he's been in a lot of films and you know Pulp Fiction of course, Die Hard. This wasn't his most iconic movie performance. He's very good in the movie. I think Haley Joel played Pips in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, M Night. We oh, I, I I'm going to give this one to Haley Joel. Okay, give it to him. I think if it's a weak actor, the film doesn't work at all. It's true. It's true. He makes it. Stir up echoes. I'd give it to Kevin Bacon. I love Kevin Bacon. But overall, Haley Joel gets it. Okay. Okay. Best dialogue award. What's your favourite quote, Gabe? <laughs> it's got to be the most obvious line in the entire movie, right? In the sixth sense, the the one that all yeah people walked around saying. Yep. Are you gonna Are you gonna do it? Are you gonna do the? Let's say it together on the count of three. You ready? Uh, one. Really? Two. Three. Uh, I see I dead people. Yeah! Stir of echoes. I can't remember a single line that was memorable in any way. Can you? Yeah, Kevin Bacon's like, God damn, I'm so sick of all of these stirred up echoes. <laughs> in that case, the Sixth Sense gets it. All right. The Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. This is interesting. I mean, I mentioned earlier that the Sixth Sense was very slow boil. It doesn't really invite big performances. You could say that Donnie's big, but I think he works in the movie. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? On Donnie in particular, yeah, I think he's big, but he totally works in the yeah. in the film. I don't think I don't think his performance is tipped into anything too too silly. I don't really think like there's not a lot of ham in the Sixth Sense. No, I agree. Maybe that maybe the bloke who plays the teacher, Mister Stutter, whatever his name is, who's like, whoop, 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 whoop. oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was going to say the guy that works at Little Williams's shop that sort of like has the hots for her. Ah, oh, who Bruce Willis, you know. Cranky man. Uh, imagine if he didn't solve these crimes and he just had to spend all of eternity confused that he was part of a thruple. <laughs> <laughs> that no one ever talked to him. You know, he's like, oh, man, I just watched them bang. They never invite me in. Ghost dick. <laughs> uh, how about scenery chewers in the Stir of Echoes? I'd say that older teenage boy. Sure. He's, he's really going big, isn't he? Sure. Don't you think? Yep. Trying to play the big bad. What about what about Ghost Girl? Oh, well, in terms of her just sort of like, you know, tr- uh, try, Jennifer Morrison trying to sort of be like overtly fragile, you mean? I guess so. I don't know. Just just trying to – I'm just try, trying to offer something up, that's all. Yeah, you okay. Know? Nah, fair. I think uh, – okay, let's, let's give it to that teacher from The Sixth Sense. All right. The Taking a Paycheck Award speaks for itself. Well – 
Bruce Willis literally took the paycheck because he had to. So Didn't you say he's taken a pay cut? Well, yeah, but I guess he was forced into the movie, but he didn't do the movie like to try and just get some extra cash. He was kind of forced to. I don't know. I don't think there was anyone who was really doing it, you know, like who was slumming it, so to speak. What do you think? No, not at all. How about Sturvecos? Pretty lean budget. I can't imagine they're, uh, you know, having three-course meals every day. So I don't think anyone did for the cash there either. No, no. Is this a- Call it a draw. All right, there you go. All right, this is a good one. I like this one. I'm very excited about this one because there are quite a few nominees and it's going to be quite a close contest. Yes. The Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy, named after the famous actor who starred as Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Gabe, which actor triggered, hey, 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 it's that guy, when he or she appeared on screen? Um, in Are we starting with one movie? So we want to say, hey, it's that guy in Stir of Echoes, Kevin Dunn? Definitely, definite nominee. Okay. I mentioned earlier Elena Douglas. Ileana? Ileana Douglas, sorry, who hypnotises him and many would know from, what's she been in besides Cape Fear? She's just so, so recognisable, but- she was incredibly vulnerable and fragile in that role. She's been in um, To Die For. She's great in To Die For. To Die For, fantastic movie. Uh, who else do we have as a nominee? Um, who else? I mean, if you're a CS, was Catherine Irby in CSI? No, that's some other woman. What was? Oh no, Catherine Irby's from Law and Order SVU. No, another Law and Order Criminal Intent. Law and Order. Oh, Criminal Intent. Holy shit, they made that for ten years. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's where I know her from. I mean, I have never seen her in anything else but that TV series. I'm looking at her credits here right now on IMDb, and she's been in a lot, but all I know her from is Criminal Intent. So for me, her, Kevin Dunn, and Ileana, I mean, that's a huge trifecta. Okay. Pretty good, pretty good. How about The Sixth Sense? Hey, it's that guy. It's, I mean- I mean, as you pointed out before, Olivia Williams could be a nominee here because she's been in a lot of stuff, but sort of, you know, not always particularly memorable. But when she pops up, you go, oh, oh, I like her. Look, you can put her forward as a nominee. Okay. But I just, she can't hold a candle to okay. our other th- trifecta. Okay. Instead of Echoes. Do you want to, are you suggesting we give it to them then? Are you? We need to narrow it down to one. And this could be, you know, a jelly wrestle to try and solve the winner. But uh, okay. they are three. <laughs> you sound very nervous. I feel like Kevin Dunn's going to win that jelly wrestle. Okay. So you Kevin Dunn? All right. Let's give it to Kevin Dunn. I don't think we're ready for that jelly. <laughs> the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Let's start with the Sixth Sense. Look, I'm thinking I'd say Olivia Williams. I mean, the problem there is that she's probably cast, but not just cast in movies that we see. But I'd give it to her in a heartbeat. How about you? Totally. I mean, she was great in Ghost Writer, that film directed by, you know, Roman Polanski, whose name shall not be mentioned. Um, um, is that the one with Hugh McGregor? Yeah, yeah. And and Pierce Brosnan. Recommended? Uh, yeah, it's really good. I mean, you know, these days, you know, not, I'm not sure if you're allowed to recommend a Polanski movie because, you know, he's a sex pest or has always been a sex pest, but um, it's a good movie. Okay. Um, On that light note, (laughs) um, I would say let's jump across to Stir of Echoes. Uh, Quite a few possibilities. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I do feel that Ileana Douglas is great. I mean, she has a very distinctive look. She kind of reminds me in some ways of that actress – Oh. Shelley, what's her name from those early Kubrick movies? Shelley Duvall? Yeah. Like she has a very iconic look. 
saying here she's got big teeth. No, well, just she looks quite distinctive, and she looks uh-huh. uh, like like a very unclassical actor, which makes her to me very grounded in the real world, mm-hmm. which I like. Mm-hmm. I wish she was in more. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Bacon. I wish he was in more, and I know he is. We just don't see it. A lot of TV work as well. Uh, and Kevin Dunn, I always like. Um, I don't know who are you lean to. I mean, who's a a Lindo winner here? It's a very high bar to reach. Well. Probably need to eliminate Kevin Bacon because he's actually like a movie star, I suppose. I think of this award, you know, it's like the, you know, the, they might be number four on the call sheet. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. they're not number one okay. on the call sheet, you know. So All right. as much as I'd like to see more Kevin Bacon, you know. Uh, maybe Ileana. Let's give it to Ileana. Have we given her an award? Give her an award. No, give her no. An award. Let's give it to her. Done. Ileana Douglas, your award for the uh, great actors who aren't cast often enough, the Delroy Lindo Award is waiting in Australia for you. Okay, the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Gabe, which actor steals the cake with the most ludicrous name? Well... The Sixth Sense. Yeah, totally. And they've got a few in this one, and I, I appreciate that. So we've got Bruce Willis as Malcolm Crow. Good name. <laughs> I like that. Good name. Uh, we've got the, the, the kid playing the... Uh, the, the the little twerp kid. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, it, What's his name? Tommy Tamasino. <laughs> Tommy, Tamas- Tommy Tamasimo. Tommy Tamasimo or something. That's a big you name. Know? And yep. Donnie is Vincent yep. Gray. That's a cool name. Yep, okay. It's no, I doubt it, but it's a cool name. Walk us through your favourite ones from Stir of Echoes. Uh, yeah, Jake. <laughs> and Tom. And there's Maggie. Frank, Harry, Ugh. Sheila, Bobby, Lenny. Debbie yeah. the babysitter. Hey, Debbie. We've got nothing there, Gabe. All right. I'm thinking um, you didn't actually mention Cole, but Cole Sear. Oh, yeah, that's good too. That's also a very movie name, like Sear. Like I think of a steak searing. I love it. Uh, I love it when they do this. I don't know. I mean, oh, have a Malcolm Crowe. Yeah, sure. Bruce Willis gets it. Sure. Thank you, M. Knight, for the casting. Malcolm Crowe. All right. The Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched these movies. Starting with The Sixth Sense. For me, I had completely forgotten about that really evocative scene with Donnie Wahlberg we've mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I I didn't recall that actually later in the film he listens to his own tapes with Donnie Wahlberg's character, Vincent. Ah, that's right, yeah. And that's what causes him to realise that perhaps Vincent Gray had a similar, you know, uh, curse as... Cold Seer. Okay. So they're both with Vincent Gray. Um, um, I hadn't seen Stir Records till recently, so I can't comment. So for me, I think the Vincent Gray scenes are an automatic winner. Let's do it. Give it to them. All right. We're coming into the final straight now of the awards. It's the Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre. So if imitation is the ultimate flattery, did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones. Well, The Sixth Sense obviously defined M. Night and he subsequently became known as The Twist Guy. So I think definitely. Um, Stir of Echoes ironically had a sequel, but I don't see people quoting that when they do their pitch reels to try and get the next Marvel movie up and about. What do you think? I think you're right. <laughs> In that case, uh, <laughs> The Sixth Sense gets it. Um, oh, look, I don't think The Sixth Sense is the first movie where the protagonist is dead. 
you know, I think that's a a, a well-worn trope, but uh, I think it certainly, off the back of this, created an atmosphere of, ooh, twist movies, you know, spooky twists, spooky twists. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Angel Heart did the protagonist is dead thing earlier very well. For here, it's the fact, I mean, I think this was just simply a more popular movie. Mm, indeed. All right. It's come to that time of the podcast. It's the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, Gabe, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city mm-hmm. and relocated to a sluggish cruise ship. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel uh-huh. to The Sixth Sense uh-huh. or a third sequel to Stir of Echoes. Uh-huh. They're both about a young boy who sees dead people and teams up with a father figure to solve a murder that will put their ghost to rest. Uh-huh. Gabe, the question I ask you is, which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to a studio executive to make it? Okay, I've got one for you, Ben. Now you're just going to bear with me just a touch, all right? Here it is. So you go, you've heard of this thing, The Sixth Sense. Well, this is going to blow you right out of the water. The Seventh Sense. Think about it. You walk into a video store. You see The Sixth Sense sitting there. But right next to it, there's the seventh sense. Which are you going to pick up? <laughs> Bingo, my man, the seventh sense. <laughs> so it's what, one sense better? Yeah, it's an, it's an extra sense. Why would you not want the extra sense? <laughs> um, so explain to me, what actually is the seventh sense? I mean, I don't... The, I've, yeah, I mean, that's what we're going to have to develop now. I, I I ripped off my pitch from something about Mary's, you know, seven-minute abs, um, and I don't really feel like that guy had thought it all through. <laughs> so, you know. Um, all right. I mean, as he said, seven's the key number. Seven eleven, seven dwarfs, seven, man. Well, he- seven chipmunks twirling on a branch. <laughs> Here we go. So, look, the reality is Sir Echoes ironically had a direct-to-video sequel, but, you know, truth be told, no one needs the next sequel for that movie. The stars aren't big enough. The film made $20 million only, whereas The Sixth Sense made $650 million. It had a star in Bruce Willis. Now, perhaps M. Night doesn't want to make it. That's fine. Perhaps those rights still might be with the studio. Perhaps we can somehow do a spin-off. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it. The Seventh Sense, it says to me, it's the next one. That's exactly. And you have to have seen the first five senses as well before that. Yeah. Is it a horror movie? Yeah. yeah. Kind of has to be, right? Okay. I, hey, just while we're here, did you see the sequel to The Shining? I mean, you could just do that, you know. That's Doctor Sleep. All right, quickly summarise to me what Doctor Sleep was about. Well, you know, The Shining is about a little boy who sees dead people, you know. True. And So the little boy all grown up. Exactly. So now the little boy's all grown up. He's a, a psychic wandering around. Solving mysteries. I mean, surely we've got to bring back something from the original, right? Wouldn't you just bring back Cole? Is that his name? Cole. Cole Sear. That's him. You know, now now he's grown up. He's probably all fucked up in the head because, I mean, seeing sort of traumatic bloody injuries on people everywhere you go is going to mess with you, you know? He's probably got a substance abuse problem, you know? He's probably, you know, doing rails with ghosts. Why not? Um <laughs> So where are we at? Basically, he either has to basically solve mysteries for these demanding ghosts. Yeah. If he doesn't, they kind of keep bugging him, keep haunting yeah. him until he yep. stops. Yeah. So either 
he unfortunately, a tragedy would be he would end his own life and then becomes one of those ghosts himself. Oh, is that the twist? That he's also dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. I like it. That, what do you think? I like it. We see, we what we're watching, we think is basically something like um, Dr. Sleep, the sequel with Hugh McGregor, uh-huh. which is the sequel to The Shining. Uh-huh. What we're actually watching is the movie Ghost. What? <laughs> Well, think about it. Ghost basically is a very similar movie, right? Oh, I love that. Sam Wheat, ditto, ditto. Yeah. Such romance. Right? So Sam Wheat can't leave until something's resolved. Right. It just occurred to me now in real time that perhaps The Sixth Sense isn't that original because if you think about it, same idea, right? Sam Wheat can't leave Earth until there's resolution. So he's bugging his wife who can't hear him until he finds Whoopi Goldberg. Right. And then she can hear him. When you think about it, right, really similar premise to The Sixth Sense. But isn't the ghost with unfinished business? I mean, that's sort of like a a staple, yeah. A staple? Okay. That's why they haunt. Okay. So in our sequel to The Sixth Sense called The Seventh Sense, the whole movie you think Cole Sear, like Gil McGregor, is all grown up and basically he's probably on drugs or whatever to try and you know, dampen those voices and influences around him, right? Mm-hmm. And he teams up and perhaps what happens is he teams up with someone else, maybe another kid, someone else who also sees ghosts, maybe a love interest. Wait, his love interest is another kid? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's what the seventh sense is. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't go there. No, okay. no, no. Right. Pull a ripcord. Woof. No, he teams up with uh, either another kid, which might feel a bit too repetitive, or he teams up with, say, a woman who's like a love interest, <laughs> yep, yep, right? Yep. An, ad- an adult woman. Ooh. And perhaps this becomes like essentially his biggest problem to solve yet. Okay. And what happens is it actually inspires him for the first time in a long time to recharge, you know, this energy to solve mysteries. And at the very end he solves the case about someone who was murdered and then – he himself, it's revealed, can now go away and to die. Does that mean the woman he was in a relationship with is also a ghost? <laughs> exactly. Oh. They've been doing it together. Okay. Or how's this? Okay. He has to solve his mother's murder. Oh, I like that seems maybe more interesting. Yeah. Uh, who done who 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 murdered her? Well, they're at home. I, I want to know, Ben. They're at home. Oh, uh-huh. And Someone's some psychologist has heard about this kid who can talk to dead people, but he this psychologist himself is a little bit kind of um, unstable, and he bursts in and he's like grabbing the kid like, show me dead people, show me dead people, show me, shaking him like this, and then mum comes and whacks the psychologist on the head with a frying pan, s- spins around, there's a fight, accidentally the psychologist is killed, but so is mum fatally. Uh-huh. Oh, there's not really a mystery there, is there? <laughs> no, that's a- <laughs> Okay. Seems like he did it. <laughs> he comes home from school one day and mum is uh-huh. dead or not there. Perhaps she's just dead and he has to sort and solve. <laughs> no, perhaps back she, she, she's, she's missing, she's missing. Uh, okay. And so the mystery of the movie is he could actually find her, find her body tragically and what happened. What do you think uh, of that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm down with that. Um, I mean, is there is there any other- yeah, zigging, we're zagging. We expect you to zigzag or zig harder. What is the seventh sense? If the sixth sense is seeing ghosts, 
And the other five senses are smell, taste, see, hear, touch. The sixth sense is sensing goes. Is the seventh sense like a superhero ability, like he can fly? Well, the sixth sense is already a, a superhero ability. Okay. So what would the seventh sense be that could be unique to this movie? Well, well. Can he be dead and undead in some sort of weird way? Is there something, some capacity he has to walk between both dimensions? I mean, maybe. Like we joked before about how uh, in something about Mary, the hitchhiker's number seven was the key there because, you know, you do think about the number seven. It is in it is somewhat mystical number in, in Western culture, you know. Lucky number seven, as they say. What if... Maybe it's something to do with reincarnation. I was going to say luck, but all right. <laughs> luck? Okay, if it's luck, he's like what Gambit the X-Men, who basically has great capacity to, you know, make things work in his favour. But if it's the seventh sense, like he's been reincarnated uh-huh. in some way, how does that work with that twist that he's actually dead? Oh, uh, I don't know. What if, what if this... What if he can... What if he can pull ghosts back from wherever they are? Like he can he can summon ghosts. He's a ghost puller. Yeah. He pulls ghosts. He just gives them a good old tug. So he pulls ghosts. Hang on. Does he make people come back to life? Is his skill re-injecting a corpse with the ghost within two minutes of it dying? So, you know, in the end of, you know, in Ghost where we see the body leave, the ghost leave the body and get sucked away. Mm-hmm. Is his skill being able to basically hold on to that ghost a bit longer? Yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, is, has it got to do with this? You know, the seventh sign of the of the coming apocalypse? Maybe. I don't know. Look, the studio executives is looking at his watch right now. Time is running out. We need to basically give him an answer. Well, I think then let's go with uh, an adult coal is uh, fallen on hard times and is drawn back for one last case um, that will provide him with the emotional um, uh, emotional closure that he's been lacking after years of drug and alcohol abuse due to being haunt. Done. Okay. Uh, and this is how you make a sequel to The Seventh Sense or The Sixth Sense called The Seventh Sense. Ben, step into my office. Because you're fucking fired. (laughs) 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 All right. That brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode, as always, sound so good. You can find Sam as at Showtown Sound on Instagram. Gabe, over to you. Where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Uh, At Gabe Dowrick on Twitter. Spectacular, and I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find all of my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening, folks. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with your mates. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Spooky. Spooky.